0: This is the Roaring Often Podcast. And we're back today to give notice to Dave, who's using Facebook and Instagram and all social media out there, including Twitter, as everybody on the internet can testify towards. Uh, You might have to be careful a little bit, but fortunately there's a signal to point you towards the truth.
1: I use none of those things. But (laughs) there is indeed a signal. And that signal is actually debatable because depending on who you're listening to either something did happen or it didn't happen but they definitely got banned even though they never did anything because they never did anything we are of course talking about the uh the mudslinging that's currently happening between facebook and signal single signal being the encrypted messaging service and they they created a uh, signal created a bunch of what I believe now to be samples of custom um adverts which were basically had blocks of um standard boilerplate text in them you you got this ad because you're a and you're and then this ad used your location c you're in. And then you're into something and thinking about something else. And then basically those blocks were filled in when you uh, buy the sort of advertising information that Facebook was gathering. Is the idea behind these adverts. Uh, and this is where it all gets a little bit weird. Because... Facebook then, and I, I am not entirely sure on the uh, the chain of events because it it differs depending on who you listen to. But Facebook then basically say that they blocked Signal's uh, ability to uh, post these adverts because no, they Signal were in, says
0: that Signal says that Facebook blocked them.
1: Well, no, I don't think so uh, because Signal then said they never actually posted these adverts. So there's no way that Facebook could have blocked them for posting adverts, because they never actually posted them.
0: Again, depending on who you read. That's why I took the article from the register. I mean, if you want to get a very trending topical site and register is always compliant. But the one I read was that uh, Signal pushed this uh, adverts to show people how Facebook tracks you. Facebook canceled the Signal account, so the ads couldn't be shown anymore. And now Facebook is pulling back saying that they didn't stop their account because Signal never actually delivered those ads and they had just done a PR stunt. And the screenshot that Signal posted on Twitter indicating that their account was blocked was actually from a month ago or two months ago. Signal has responded yet, so the fight is still going on there. But um, I mean, whatever happens here, Signal wins.
1: No, you're you're right, actually, you're right. You got you got it the right way around, I got it the wrong way around. Yeah. It it's I I don't really know what to to make of all of this because like I understand the the message behind it that you're alluding to, which is Signal is really all they're focused on by these ads is they they're not obviously these are not ads for the Signal app as such these are ads for
0: anti-facebook anti-tracking well
1: anti-tracking making making people aware of how much data organizations like facebook have Mm -hmm. about them and exposing it in such a way that it it makes it uh very clear to people just how much their preferences or thoughts or whatever are are exposed or sort of uh, made,
0: uh, made visible to advertisers? Yeah, because basically, these ads from uh, Signal, I'm going to read one here. You got this ad because you're a certified public accountant in an open relationship, and this ad used your location to see you're in South Atlanta, and you're into natural skincare, and you're supported Cardi B since day one. I mean, all of the ads you see use these pieces of information to, def- to define if they should show you this ad or not. The only thing that the Signal ads, supposedly, they're doing is taking all those tags and actually putting them on the screen so you can see Mm. on what basis you are shown this ad. Now, that being said, uh, for Signal, it would have been very difficult to make these ads actually work, I think, because they would have to designate the ad is applicable to everybody for uh, for them to be able to get different results on screen because typically how this works is I make an ad and I say I only want to show this ad to... Um, white males doing a podcast uh, about elephants, which means with, with a target audience, and which means we would only be the ones seeing it. The idea behind this ad, and that's where I think it, Facebook might be right, and again, this is a lot of mudslinging going on, is that if Signal wanted to do this, they would have made the boundaries of the ad availability, of applicability so broad that pretty much everybody on, Signal, on, on Facebook got the ads. I don't think that's actually possible or even desirable or financially feasible
1: uh, I think it's definitely possible I don't I don't know a lot of details but that what I do understand about it it suggests that to me that that is very very possible yeah, but because expensive. there's uh I mean not really not but in yes, the grand scheme of things Yes, just to is. just just to get a, a handful of these out there. I mean, but yeah, but it's all based on on how many you run, right? Exactly. And you don't need to run a gajillion of these yes, to get do. the
0: an article like this. Ah, uh, okay, now you're getting up. there. Because that's the whole yeah. for me that's how the thing worked. Because Signal could could never have had the intention of having a mass advertisement campaign that everybody got to see no. at least one or two of these. Because that would have meant they had to have bazillions of ads out there, which would be totally financially unviable. The thing is, the thing is always a thing, they went to Twitter to say that Facebook blocked them because we're doing this. And that is causing all of the trending documents and, and articles, things happening, which actually allows Signal to achieve their aim, making people feel that's true or not true. I leave it up to the to the, eye of the beholder that Facebook is using your data in maybe nefarious ways. I'm not making any judgment value here, but they've been able to do that without spending all the money on the ads because social media to doing it for them though.
1: so what's the odd saying uh, there's no such thing as bad publicity <laughs>
0: um well this isn't even bad publicity and the thing i mean it, it's it's this is brilliant by signal because the more facebook needs to say they're wrong and the more facebook says that signal is wrong the more they prove that signal is right mm. it's it's viral advertisement to, to, to it's pretty brilliant to be honest
1: yeah, I, I agree. Like you, you, you sell, you know, a handful, maybe, uh, maybe ten dollars of dollars worth of, of ads, and uh, you get a multi-million dollar ad campaign out of it that's, uh, uh, that's actually shared by the entire sort of digital news press. I mean, <laughs> it's,
0: pre- it's pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and I mean. Maybe the worst thing about the whole story here is that this actually is working because the only reason that this gets so much press today is because there's still the majority of people don't um, know, don't understand the depth of all the tracking going on. Mm. And I mean, in a previous episode, we talked about uh, data locality and geographical boundaries and stuff like that. But that's all great. But then people post stuff on Twitter anyway. Yeah, it's we need to be more careful about it. we've been talking about this on that podcast before uh, already that people need to be more knowledgeable more, more mature in how they interact with the technologies basically with the internet with everything that's possible all the, the adage if it's free you're not the customer you're the product all these things everybody knows this everybody has heard this at least once but still it's so easy right
1: indeed indeed so moving on from signal and their masterful ad campaign, uh, let's look at something that makes a little less sense, <laughs> at least to at least to me and probably to Yon, and that's Dell launching a storage as a service platform, which they're calling Apex. now I, I can't help seeing Apex and then thinking either Predator or Legends, depending on your, um, your particular predilection. But Project Apex is Dell's offering to provide storage as a service um, with a financially-backed SLA, and it's available on-prem and in cloud, and I don't understand who would use it.
0: Yeah, and I'm just highlighting here. It's not just Dell that's doing this. They're doing this actually as, yeah. a, as a reaction to a similar service that was printed by HPE a little while ago. There's the same thing, being able to... to to. to I mean, what does the service contain? Basically cloud storage, but then not in the... Well, well, but it doesn't, though. That's the problem. So, like, there's
1: a table further on down, if you skip onto that, that. Like, this, to me, is where this all falls apart, because if you look at what is actually... Covered here, it only provides at least consistently across both of them. It only provide both of them provide block storage, and that's it. That's the only consistency. Like Apex provides file storage, but the HPE solution doesn't. Um, Apex is supposedly soon to offer object storage, yep. and the HP solution doesn't. And and it just all. It all descends into this sort of then soup of different technologies that uh, I just I don't understand when so many other well, like everybody else is moving to object storage pretty much in in as as many ways as they possibly can. like if they can, they're moving to object storage it's the it's the cheapest. It's the use case allows for it basically because object yeah. store
0: is cheap massive and slow as molasses
1: yeah yeah but if you if your use case supports it that's where the majority of people yeah. are going um, and the majority of people certainly i've spoken to are not looking to put huge amounts of block or file storage in their on-prem data centers and if you're going to a cloud provider why why would you not use the native cloud providers you know block file or object store why would you want to use this you know a third party layer which is bound to be on top of some of the cloud providers services the so the only thing that i can possibly sort of consider is if you're looking at this from a i want the same technologies on-prem as i have in the cloud and i i just want the least risk option which i don't think this is by the way but that could be someone's view (laughs) and so i just want to deploy the same technologies in two locations and then not think about it anymore but i don't like that's just not the way the world works anymore i just don't i don't believe in this i don't think that this is a product that makes sense in this in in this day and age
0: yeah i mean the object store is as you say the thing that sets the side that's the reason we didn't talk about hpe one when that came up because i was just a a block store and yeah i don't see a reason for that either the apex Mm -hmm. thing is adding soon the object store and that made it more relevant i guess because as you said blob store is pretty hot these days but having this available i mean with the block store and the file store, basically what you're doing there is having, and I think the data center in question for Dell is the Econics, um line of data centers, that Dell would put hardware in that data center where your hardware is also positioned, and you would then be able to consume the storage availability on the Dell clusters, completely managed by Dell and whatever as a SaaS appliance from within that data center and i guess that does have some use in certain environments for people that have a lot of data can't go to the cloud because of reasons security compliance you know how, how this thing uh, happens these days whether these are valid or not concerns so i'm not going to go into it at the moment but you want to stay on premise you don't want to spend all the money on buying storage arrays so you want to go to a SaaS environment Uh, The Dell article, of this article also explains that Dell isn't going to be charging for overages, which sounds very um, impossible to me, to be honest. SaaS services without uh, overages, it's impossible, especially for for a storage solution. But it's never going to be cheaper, because somebody still needs to manage this stuff. You're going to be paying for that, and data is not something that's ephemeral. Once it's there, it stays there, you have to keep on paying for it. If you don't do that, then you don't need these SaaS services. You can just use your own storage arrays because you should have people in the house that are smart enough to, di- to, to count the amount of bytes you need to to, to store and have that available for you. Um, having it totally outsourced, I guess, makes sense, but a lot of those companies have everything outsourced. They have their compute and their data outsourced to the data centers of, well, fill in your, your, your ISV of preference here. So again, there's no need for this kind of stuff. Now, I do know a couple of big ISPs, uh, sorry, ISVs, not ISPs uh, are actually f- basing their own internal data centers on top of the um, hyper architectures that are being presented by, for example, HPE and Dell, the, the Greenfield and the PowerFlex mm-hmm. stuff. So, that already has the storage in there as well. So, again, no reason to go there. And the last one, yeah, if you're going to go into public cloud anyway... Having your data sit somewhere else means your data graph is going to shift and you're going to have yeah. a lot of egress of data, which is a very expensive. Yes, a byte isn't expensive, but you're going to do more than one byte, especially going to be talking about these blob storages, which are supposed to be massive size. So how this can be a sellable... Who is going to buy this? I have no idea. But apparently there must be demand for it.
1: Yeah. I... I I don't understand. Uh but part of the reason that I struggle with this is also because of the PTSD and flashbacks that I'm having when I think about the Dell EMC Isilon. um
0: the good old days. Uh, I was going to
1: I was going to say debacle no that's that's not very nice. Um train wreck no that's not very good either. Um Experience, there we go. I I just don't think it's... Uh, it, I've not seen a lot of good success out of these solutions in the past. Um, Isilon, like their 1FS, was tuned to add object storage back in 2020, apparently. Mm-hmm. Uh so they've had apparently object storage within that, and that was long sort of added into the power scale, which is I think part of the converged hybrid converged mm-hmm. architectures that you were talking about. So that like, it doesn't part of me wonders if this is just a rebranding of, you know, if you if you peeled the sticky back plastic off of these things, would it just be a bunch of Isilon underneath that's managed by Definitely. it's a SaaS uh, layer on
0: top? This is it. Maybe yeah it's just a sauce
1: exactly so
0: oh dear
1: I, I I cannot imagine they will have created something completely new from scratch for oh. this like it just it just doesn't make sense and so I I don't I don't know I don't have a lot of faith in this I, I've not I'm sure there are great solutions out there and people that are very happy with their Iceland experiences but I've not
0: met any of them for me i think this is more dell and hpe trying to make themselves relevant again in the cloud times yeah and to be honest i mean if you look at the start of amazon that was blob store and some vms and Mm -hmm. all the rest grew from that if they can make this work as a technology then they have the storage parts uh, done and hp and dell can give you compute as well so is there is this they're trying to get into the cloud public cloud provider setting up an entity like that
1: i, I can't see it like the, the cloud providers are all about cost at scale yeah. really and I, I cannot imagine that this is going to hit that price point that the, that the cloud providers There's a reason why they develop their own um, stuff from the ground up, and it's because they, again, as you say, honestly, have to try and hit as cheap a price point as they can to deliver the level of service that their customers expect. And the only way that any of the major cloud providers can do that is by customizing, and putting huge amounts of engineering time into that, very specific set of purposes that that technology delivers. It's not a, you can't go and just buy, a, or I'll just go down the shops and buy an Amazon data center with all of its stuff up and running. Like it's not a thing. So, I, I just, I don't, I yeah. don't get it. I don't understand. But what does oh. a Dell
0: and HP need to do? Because they're seeing their the, the private clouds, which were full of their hardware. Those are evaporating more rapidly yeah. every day. People are moving yep. to the public clouds. So I can see from the Dell and HP and probably Fujitsu and Lenovo and all of the other big uh, hardware manufacturers that probably have the same thing here. They need to do something. I mean, there will always be Complete. a piece of on-premise that will remain. It will never go away. Never, It will never be state that everything's in the cloud. I mean, I have an 80 terabyte file server here in this room. I'm... Not the, the the norm probably, but still, there will always be a reason to have something local. But it's going to be very small and smaller even more. The uh, further you go down, down the down down the, the road here, they need to do something because, as you also just mentioned, the cloud providers they started by putting a lot of Dell, HPE, uh, mm. microsun, microser, micro super micro that's what I'm looking for super micro servers in the racks. But today, they're building their own servers storage solutions yep. they even build their own uh chips these days so yep. all of that business is going away from the delta HPs of this world world yeah what are they supposed to do what are they going to do to stay again relevant uh, to stay afloat to stay a, a business if you look at ibm they've gone on the cloud path already they've got their own cloud provider cloud in the in in the, inter- in the internets which you can consume from both storage and uh, compute from isn't really taking off. Definitely not compared to the big three. That's why the big three mm-hmm. are the big three. Uh, even Oracle is going that into the cloud stuff, more of a SaaS level, but still they also saw the, the things shifting a bit. For these guys, the pure hardware vendors, they're in the t- they're in a tough spot. They're in a hard place.
1: I mean, don't get me wrong. I have, I have no idea what they're going to do. I have... I, I, I'm certain that they are spiraling the drain at the moment i i I cannot imagine what on earth they can do strategy wise to dig themselves out of this but i don't think this is it
0: it's uh, I, I feel it's kind of a desperation tactic at the moment, trying to get as much as they can still get for people that want that think they need to go to the cloud but kind of afraid to put all the data in the cloud. Oh, no problem, says Mr. Dell says Mr HP says Mr. I am I was your the hardware provider already before you can trust me. We will do this for you as a SaaS service. But yeah, I mean the deployments of these things and and the bill at the end, I mean the data transfer costs. They say it's going to be without any overages, but data transfer costs are unpredictable. They're very usage-driven and always more than you think it'll be. Yep. That's why cloud works, because you stay in the same ecosystem and you don't have to pay for that traffic until you go out of it. That's... Yeah. Well...
1: Speaking of, of one ecosystem merging with another ecosystem, talk to me about your glorious journey of web browsers.
0: <laughs> yeah, not sure if it's actually newsworthy, but... In my, my days, I've had an interesting movement of browsers. I started up with Firefox, and then Firefox kind of went away, and I went to Windows, Windows became more popular, I went to Edge, or the Internet Explorer, which then also became crap, and then I went to Chrome, which was a bit too annoying with all of the advertisement and then tracking, so I went to Firefox again and then firefox and android became really horrible and i'm hoping somebody from firefox is listening to this the android skin of firefox is horrible please go back to the old one but that left me a bit on the lurch because i you, i kind of liked the firefox solution where you had the possibility to have the same browser on windows linux and android because then you, have, you can do things like uh, tab sharing uh, pop, uh bookmark sharing very important I bookmark something right on my phone in the train i come home my desktop bookmark is there that was i, I loved that and by not having a Functional browser, I would say, on my Android. I've switched to Brave there. I didn't have it anymore. I really missed it. And lo and behold, night in shining armor, Microsoft is here to unite the world for me again with the upcoming release of the Edge browser for Linux. Now, again, this is newsworthy. I don't know. It was a bit of fun that this came up when I was searching for articles today and um, Microsoft being the one to bring the browser to linux of all things and complete the android windows linux ecosystem with the same browser having that sharing functionality again is actually making me switch away from firefox and starting to use the edge browser based on chrome still there but a lot of stuff is crafted out so um it's been an interesting part and yeah I was totally flabbergasted myself to, to see myself installing edge everywhere and even though i worked at microsoft for a long time i have nothing against the company explorer was not my favorite browser edge the original one didn't really scratch my itch either but uh the new chrome based edge seems to have everything that a distributed person like myself talking about the pl- employment stuff like that um, makes it a sweet spot the one thing i will say is that in the in the edge browser for desktop if you want to change your search engine away from bing it is possible it is the last option on the last page in the settings <laughs> 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 so luckily internet helps you find those stuff of course but um, while well, let's make it possible they haven't exactly made it easy to do but uh, we're also now enjoying the fun of uh, trying out a new search engine. I've selected DuckDuckGo for now. See how far that brings me.
1: Yeah, I I started off with Mozilla when that <laughs> uh, when that became Firefox. I moved over to Firefox. I've stayed on Firefox ever since. I must admit, I do not use the same browser on Android as I use everywhere else. But I use Firefox everywhere else. Why do you and, use on Android? Uh, uh, I use Chrome on Android. Actually, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I it works for me. It, it's it's such a it's a nice user experience. I I agree with all of your concerns around tracking and everything else, but uh, mm-hmm. I I honestly I care more about the user experience, and the user experience of of uh, Chrome on Android is exceptionally good, and mm-hmm. I I deal with the fact that yeah I don't have. Uh, necessary native tab syncing across across those but mm. that's that's okay for yeah. me at least
0: and again i'm not trying to avoid being tracked mm. right i mean i will be tracked there's no way around that i'm just trying to make it as hard as possible and if on an <laughs> android device which is tracked by google you put the chrome browser it's also tracked by google for me i make it too easy for them i need to find a way of putting a couple of kinks in there to at least make them work for their effort so, by using the Edge browser in an Android environment, I'm trying to do my thing, I don't know. Well, there is uh, one more surprise
1: article that I'm gonna spring on, Jon. Oh and, God, no. uh, I've I've put it in the episode notes, but this uh, was actually a link at the side of uh, one of the other articles we were talking about. And I thought this was pretty interesting. I've been a huge fan of uh, a company called Backblaze for a very long time. They're a cloud-based backup storage provider. I've never used them for that particular service. But what I am a huge fan of is they publicly share the reliability information uh, that they experience on the drives. And as... Uh, the, the drives that they run within their within their environment. So for example at the moment their their current uh cloud is made up of 1,518 SSDs and 1,669 nice uh hard drives of the traditional spinning rust kind. The the interesting thing here is that uh as you know everybody is moving a lot of um towards you know solid state storage as it becomes cheaper uh, as it becomes not so much faster because for for the majority of um reasons you only need ssd storage to be so fast you know once it gets uh, to a particular speed level for the majority of uses especially things like backup there's a there's a certain limit to how far that needs to go one of the things that people are still very interested in is the um, is the failure rates between these two technologies and I certainly remember the early days of SSDs when there were lots of doom and gloom about the fact that your SSDs were gonna you know you'd buy your new SSD it was slightly faster than a hard drive but it'd be worn out in sort of two years well this is showing some some interesting sort of metrics now they've got a Good number of, of drives in there. They're seeing a 0.58 percent um, failure rate on SSDs compared to a 10.5 uh, percent or 10.56 percent failure rate on spinning hard drives, which is sort of uh, you know astounding. Now you also need to factor in the fact that they've got the spinning hard drives have been there for much much longer. Exactly. Uh, and so if you scroll down in the table if you look at it from an annualized failure rate then ssd totals uh, still you know hover around at the 0.65 percent now but hard drives are still around six percent so you've still got you know a a roughly 10x or 9.3 if you want to be uh, precise um failure rate increase between sort of hard drives and SSDs, with the SSDs being significantly more reliable.
0: Yeah.
1: I, I think this is this is really, really interesting. I, I still I still have spinning rust in my uh in my storage server just for capacity's sake, I'm using 12 terabyte drives. Uh, and I've got uh, quite a few of those, but the the idea that in the hopefully not too distant future uh, pro- probably the next refresh maybe that will will finally be the point where SSD you know slow slower um, sort of capacity SSD will make more sense
0: uh, maybe, but I hate these numbers. These numbers are not uh, usable. Because as you just mentioned yourself, SSDs do have a finite lifetime independent Mm -hmm. of, uh, I mean, you can only rewrite a a chip so so many times and then it just starts failing. And I've got some SSDs in my uh, application server and the smart uh, analytics already show me it's like 10, 15% aged. So it is going to end up these data even the analyzed one is still looking at hard disks that have been running for four years and ssds have been running one year let's just assume I'm not saying it's the case but let's assume that the two-year ssd lifespan is fixed that's just how it works the backblaze the they're a data center so these things are running 24 7. this is not like a home thing that maybe it doesn't run in weekends now this stuff is running all the time if they all kill themselves after two years then your AFR will be 100% for SSDs and still 6% for HDDs. Sure. Uh, Not gonna happen. Two years is a totally fictitious number, not gonna happen there. Mm -hmm. But this is missing in this table. We need, if they had only compared this with the hard disks they purchased in the last 12 months and compared those two together, I'm pretty sure the numbers will be very different and they'll be pretty much the same thing. Because to be honest, anything that fails in the first 12 months that's a factory warranty defect yeah this is not talking about aging and uh, the, the iron rusting <laughs> you mentioned yeah so this table i hate it with vengeance as a as a semi-data scientist i really don't like how to present this because they're picking numbers to make their point and i don't like it
1: well wow. <laughs> fair enough I I agree, but you can only you can also only use the data you've got. Like they, they've only had SSDs in their infrastructure for thirty months now.
0: But then compare them they, with they, one year of SSD and not the ones that are four years old. Yeah, I
1: I don't know that they haven't done that in the the no. actual blog post from Backblaze because I'm there. Usually, their articles are or their yeah. blog posts are very, very fair. This but they is a won't
0: because it doesn't make sense. Because, again, one year that's factory warranty defects, and they should be similar for all the products.
1: Yeah, but what I'm saying is the article that we're looking at here is not the the Backblaze article, this is just an article talking about the BlackBlaze article, if that makes any sense. Yeah. But, so, I'm just looking to see if there is actually such a table on the actual article. But interestingly, Um,
0: Uh, would you like to know more? But still, even if they did that, as I say, the numbers would not be meaningless because the idea for these graphs are that you're looking at how old they become until they fail. And you need to go beyond one year because one year, you're only looking at factory defects. You're not looking at the effects of age. Yeah, yeah. So this uh, this table can only become valid once they have the SSDs in their say, data center for at least three to four years. And then it becomes interesting. Yeah. And again, why? But if it, you've only got them in place for then so don't share time, the statistics because the statistics can... don't mean anything.
1: <laughs> well, I I thought I thought <laughs> that that second table was actually talking about that, but maybe nope, they just
0: annualized it so they mis- divided really. the HDDs by four. It's the number of drive okay. days that are different in the two tables. In the first table, they have similar drive days: so 124 versus 152,000. And in the annualized one, it's 450,000 hours a day for the SSDs and three million for the HDDs. That's why the second table has a smaller number because it's more days. So yeah. the first table is completely um, uh, BS, and the second table is only slight BS, but still BS.
1: They do talk, uh, so in the Backblaze article itself, they do talk about the fact that they acknowledge there are uh, issues with with what they report. (laughs) And they do talk about the fact that um, they will be digging into more of the data timelines to... Examine hard drives in the early years of their use, and they will publish those results. So they have actually acknowledged that it's Does just the article the that we, show, yeah. we initially looked at wasn't uh, wasn't pointing that. But I still think it's interesting. I still look it forward to. will be to, soon, but not yet. Yeah, when the the point when uh, larger uh, larger capacity, cheaper SSDs become uh, more prevalent and significantly less expensive and maybe have longer lifetimes and we have some evidence to back that up
0: never gonna happen because by that time they'll be replaced by nvmes yeah maybe (laughs) maybe
1: anyway that's enough storage fun and surprise articles
0: and unless there's anything else from you Uh, No, I'm totally still shocked by that surprise article you've you've put up there just without any preparation. What do you expect of me here? I want to raise. That's that's
1: the very best way to do it. And in that case, (laughs) that is all the time we have today. You can support this podcast by becoming a patron. Every contribution helps. We're on YouTube. You can like, subscribe, hit the notification bell, comment, and all the YouTube things. Please go to www.roaringelephant.org for a link to our Patreon page and for more information about this podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter using the at Elephant tag and send your feedback to podcast at RoaringElephant.org. Until next time, my name is Spinning Rust Dave.
0: And my name is, I'm happy I don't know my MTTR. Yo.
1: <laughs> and we'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. See you then.